Welcome to 33 Tangents, a weekly podcast featuring a rotating panel of co-hosts that all work together in the same company, but live in different areas of the world. The discussions cover a wide variety of topics from digital analytics to working remotely to current happenings in business and technology. Our regular day-to-day conversations often go off in various directions, and the goal of this podcast is to share our ideas and find new ways to engage with others. I suck. So this in in another meeting? Yeah, I have a lunch appointment, so. Oh, nice. Going anywhere good? I don't know. I don't know if it's like, and by the way, I have like 40 minutes. Um, okay. So oh, we'll rock something out. <laughs> so I, I don't know if it's like this in other places of the country, but Utah has a, an infatuation with assembly line restaurants. Go on. Okay. So. Um, this became popular, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago in the Mexican food space. Okay. Um, and there was a, a company called Bajio that was one of the first that I remember. And then there were more. Uh, there's one called Cafe Rio. There's one called, uh, now I'm spacing it, Costa Vida. So the idea is it's this assembly line. You go in, you pick your tortilla, you pick your like protein you pick your rice and they assemble it for yeah so almost like a kudoba or chipotle ish yeah and i think there's others that are like national chains that are kind of i and these are all local utah things but Mm -hmm. i can think of like some national chains that are kind of in this space as well i think there's like a a noodles place or something or something that does rice. I can't, I can't think of the, I can't place the name, but okay. anyway, Utah is infatuated with this concept of like this assembly line food. Gotcha. Um, okay. And recently there's been a Vietnamese place open up and a, um, I'm trying to think there's one other place, like a Hawaiian uh, fish place open up. Where it's the same style. It's like this assembly oh. line style. Yeah. Todd and I, when I was up in Boston, Todd and I went uh, across the street uh, from the monitor's office to get uh, poke bowls from yeah, a place yeah. similar to that. That's it. That's it. There's a place down the street, a poke place that's assembly yeah. line style. So Yeah. I mean, I, I can't think of any around here that that are like that but i could think of like the chain places when i, when I say think of any around here i'm thinking like like the local kind of you know maybe they're like two or three restaurants kind of thing you know we, we've got the chipotles we've got the kudobas and yeah. places like that yep so a buddy of mine um who's a product manager over at bamboo hr um we try to get lunch every once in a while um he wants to try a new assembly line place um Interesting and interestingly enough, called Walk the Line. Interesting. W O K Walk the Line. Gotcha. So okay. it's a, it's a Chinese place, and it's not like Panda Express where you pick your like pre-made things, right? Mm-hmm. And you go down the line. This is a you know, do you want you you get right different rice, different whatever? Then you pick your protein, then you pick your sauce, then you and they kind of compile it in the assembly line. Not really my thing, but you know, I'm going to give it a try. Take, take pictures. I will. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious to see how, how a Chinese place would work out with something <laughs> yeah. like that. Yeah, I will. Uh, 
I'll snap some photos. So <laughs> that's that. And um, I got an interesting tweet. I'm trying to go through my feed here because it got buried somewhat. But Nancy Dewey um, tweeted to me last night. She really um, liked the episode with Carrie from HBR. Oh, that's um, great. She said that uh, she said something about how um, she was listening to it. She's like, this sounds exactly like my company. And, and she shared it with a bunch of colleagues. And one of the colleagues reached out to her and said, wait a minute, does Carrie work at her company? Because <laughs> it sounded like it was their company. And then and then he said, and then she said, oh, and by the way, he wants to know what happened with the fly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I haven't seen the fly in like no. No, it's it's gotten cold outside, so I'm wondering if the fly's gone. But I I told her I'm like, well, we're recording a podcast today, so mm -hmm. the fly may return for his cameo appearance. Yeah. But it's it's probably too cold outside. So that is that is that. What's uh, what's going on in your world? Oh, the baby's really uh, starting to teeth. Or at least that's that's our you know suspicion. He really uh, hasn't slept the last two nights. Uh, we're actually we have a pediatrician appointment uh, this evening. Just take it out to make sure we're like not missing like any ear infection or something like that. He had his six month checkup two weeks ago, and like you know he's been tugging at his ear and mm. they they looked and like nah we just think it's probably a symptom of the teething because that that could be something where they they feel it in their ears but he's still tugging at it and the last couple of nights he's also gotten stuff he's sort of like well let's go ahead and check make sure we're not mistaking what are could be symptoms of teething yeah. with symptoms of a cold or, or an ear infection so last night was a uh, another night in the recliner for me oh <laughs> that's those are rough nights yeah but, so uh, i think i'm on like my third cup of coffee at the moment <laughs> <clears throat> Well, well, get used to it because you've got this, I don't know how many years in the baby phase where the sleep is just horrible. And then you get this respite for a while where it's like, ah, oh, and you think, okay, this is it. And then they become teenagers and then like you can't sleep again. So mm -hmm. you have, you're going to have to enjoy that middle period where you can get some good sleep before, before they turn teenagers. And you know, I'm sure you were rolling back into your house two and three in the morning, keeping your parents up as well. So. At times, yeah. <laughs> um, so he's actually been a great sleeper. Like this, these last couple of nights have been a complete aberration. Um, and that's why we're like, okay, something is, is something really wrong? Like, is it more than just the teething or is he just kind of going through one of those difficult phases? Right. He hasn't done something like this since he was like three weeks old. Um, he he usually goes down without a problem and then sleeps until 6 a.m. So, yeah, no, I mean, uh, believe me, I, I, I know how lucky I am with the fact that yeah, he does enjoy enjoy his sleep. Yeah. So so th th there's that. So I thought today would be an interesting, interesting episode because, you know, I, I, I've got some topics I'm working on, but I really wasn't able to figure something out for for today today snuck up on me with some other stuff i've been working on and that's okay, and that's okay because i have a potential topic if you if you yeah don't. i was just like i was just going to start off with just kind of asking a very general question and just kind of you know i, I thought maybe let, let's start with just getting your thoughts on just the general state of of things in the analytics and marketing technology space yeah and i think that 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 actually uh dovetails in nicely with uh, what what the topic I was thinking about it's a it's an interesting time and we've we've been through these 
different waves since I got in the industry back in 2004, uh, where you have these waves where new things and technologies come into play and you have the early adopters that absolutely are making an informed decision on why they're getting into this technology. They have very specific reasons for things they're trying to en enable or solve for. Uh, but then you start to get kind of the, the fat part of the curve where the, the rest of the adopters start to come along. And when you start to get towards the laggards, it's interesting in that you have buyers buying because they everyone else is buying. And I, th I think you see this in a lot of other industries. I was talking they're, about they're, they're, they're just following on or they think yeah, it's, the it's, the adoption, it's the it's the normal adoption curve, mm -hmm. right? And I was talking with a financial uh, advisor guy the other day, and he was telling me something similar with investing in the stock market. You know, the you get people when the stock market tends to be down and inflated, um, they're buying for very specific reasons. And then you get more and more buyers. And then by the time everyone else is buying, you get the laggards who are buying at the very top of the peak. And they're the ones that actually push you into a recession. Mm -hmm. um, and so anyway, it's, you know, we see similar trends in, in the MarTech space where you have people coming in and they're, they're buying and they don't know why other than everyone else is, is buying. Mm -hmm. And from a services perspective, what is interesting is that in order to fulfill that demand, you see a lot of agencies popping up willing to offer all kinds of services because now the fat part of the market is buying. They want to cash in on everyone buying. And not only that, cash in on buyers that are often uninformed and have no real direction on, on why they're buying. Um, mm -hmm. And so it creates for a very, very interesting dynamic and in, you know, to, to be completely transparent, a dynamic that is often really frustrating to me because, you know, when, when I feel like companies like 33 sticks and there are many others in the industry that are great examples of, of doing really, really high quality, high value work, getting lumped in with everyone else that's just coming to the game to try to cash in and doesn't care. Mm. Um, that frustrates me. No, and it, it totally makes sense. Why? You know, they're coming in for for quick cash grab, and you know, and if you when you pair that with the people like, well, we got to do this, so they're just going to pick somebody, and a lot of times they they also drive down the value of the work that's being done. Yeah. Oh, by by all means, and yeah, because so, just you know, they they try everyone tries to start undercutting each other. Yeah, it's a race to the bottom. Yeah. You know? So you have to find ways to elevate your game. But, you know, I was thinking about it this morning specifically with um, and I don't want to call out a whole industry because it's not it's not everyone. But there are a large majority of uh, digital marketing agencies that have bolted on analytics as a service offering, mm -hmm. um, not necessarily because it's their core competency but because that you know they've been in companies running campaigns and they're hearing we need to be data informed we need data to really understand if you're running a solid campaign and so it became i think a no brainer for lots of marketing agencies to bolt it on as just a way to increase their their revenue mm -hmm. um, and unfortunately i don't think many of them have invested in 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 really becoming true experts with digital analytics uh, and that's unfortunate um, but a lot of companies don't know any better and are often led astray by these agencies. And one specific experience that I was going to bring up that I thought we could talk about was I've seen multiple times and most recently with a prospect that I've been talking to where a company will have an established implementation. 
um, that's working for them. In this case, um, an Adobe Analytics implementation that they've been running for several years. Uh, they retained a marketing agency uh, to run some marketing campaigns. And I, I sat there and watched the marketing agency work to undermine and sow seeds of doubt about the validity and power of Adobe Analytics. And I'm sitting there scratching my head like, why are they doing this? Do they truly believe they're giving advice to the to their customer that they believe is best for them? And when I unraveled it, it wasn't. It's that they didn't have any comfort level with anything other than Google Analytics campaign reporting. And so by them undermining the existing implementation that was there, it had nothing to do about the value of that. It was, we don't feel comfortable running it and we don't feel comfortable sending you off to someone else because we have to sell you our analytics services. And so I think, you know, it's an interesting conversation from lots of angles from, you know, like an Adobe's perspective, they have this group of people out there that are enemies of them and undermining what they're doing. And, and it, it may be hard for them to see that this is happening, but it's absolutely happening. Um, from company's perspective, you know, you're, you're being put in a situation where you may have a very stable MarTech uh, solution in place. And by making the decision to bring on a, a digital marketing agency, you could be instantly throwing things into disarray for no fault of your own other than you're bringing in someone from the outside who has um, objectives to undermine what you're currently doing. Again, not what's best for you, but it's because they just don't have a comfort level with it. And it's, yeah. and I think it's unfortunate. Sorry, that was a long ramble. No. And I was trying to make notes of a couple of things that uh, I, I kind of want to dig into there a bit. So the first thing I want to think of is, is, you know, you, you mentioned the comfort level. Now, do you think there could be anything more sinister? Um, and I'm, I'm a fan of that word today. Um, <laughs> where you know th there th there's more to them sowing doubt into the existing implementation and trying you know whether it's adding more services or the fact that they need to control the data. Yeah, they 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 need to they want to control the data that goes off to the client so that there's never any doubt in what they're managing. I, I, I want to give them the benefit of the doubt to say that um, it, it's not sinister. Um, I think that there are a couple factors in play. The, the most overriding one is just they don't have a comfort level with it. Right. Mm -hmm. And the natural response is to put up defense mechanisms so that, you know, they don't look less valuable than than they think they are. Um, so I, I really think that that's a huge driver. Another driver that you reminded me of as you were talking through it is that, yeah, I mean, I think they they are sick of of having their their numbers challenged because we see it all the time. Right. When we're in an engagement with a client that's running a campaign and they're they're getting numbers back from their marketing agency and we're kind of playing devil's advocate a bit and saying well that's not what we're seeing happen mm -hmm. i think i think marketing agencies are a little sick of that um but i don't think it's sinister to say let's let's kind of carve out our own little circle so we can control the narrative i think it's just more of a, a natural defense mechanism to say let's control what we're comfortable with um and let's try to deflect kind of doubt in, into what we're we're doing um, but it does bring up an interesting point because, you know, we've had a few engagements specifically with really large campaigns, like several million dollar buy campaigns where the marketing agency's client has specifically said, 
if we're going to buy this from you, we have to work with an independent third party to be kind of the voice of reason. So, mm-hmm. you know, it does bring up that, um, that as well. So, but I, there probably are some, some nefarious, uh, what was your word? Sinister. Sinister agencies out there that are doing it as a way to increase consulting dollars uh, by, mm-hmm. by all means. But I, I, I think they're probably the exception rather than the rule. Yeah, no, I mean, in the past, the reason I bring that up is, is in the past, I have seen that where, you know, an agency is coming in and they kind of see a gold mine. So they, they, they start to introduce little things and it almost becomes like a Trojan horse. And it starts to become transparent that their, their goal is to, you know, if they're a particular vendor type of shop that they're going to come in and not just they use say whether the marketing campaigns managing those as a way of getting in and elsewhere you know i remember seeing something like that about a year ago and you know and i i I called it out i said listen my concern is is they're going to add massive confusion to a system that you're already saying is the the tool of record yeah by by all means that happens and i think it's unfortunate and i think a big driver of that is so many SaaS, uh, specifically in the MarTech space, partner programs um, have devolved from being true partner programs into being reseller programs. And I was about to say commission-based sales programs. Commission-based sales programs, right? And this, as soon as you introduce money into that conversation, it's very difficult to make decisions that are best for the client rather than what's best for our you know, bottom line. Um, it happens all the time. In fact, I was talking to a company a couple of weeks ago where they um, wanted a second opinion from an agency they're working with that they're having some data collection issues and they um, were advised that they needed to upgrade to uh, GA360 and that would solve the problem. And I, I dug into a little bit and it was clear that that wasn't going to solve the problem, um, but it's also clear that the agency that was recommending it was a Google authorized reseller. Mm-hmm. And we've seen it in the Adobe space as well. Um, we've seen agencies that are you know, pitching really large investments in the Adobe stack that may or may not make sense. And you have to question the fact that they're, they, not only are they getting kickbacks from Adobe, but um, the, the setup is that they oftentimes have a, uh, a number that they're forced to hit in order to maintain their status. And and so that becomes really difficult. If I, as a partner, am on the hook for driving a million dollars in in uh, revenue for my, my partner, um, it puts me in a real bind. Because if I'm getting not only kickbacks from a, a, a monetary perspective, but that's giving me access to things like marketing. Oftentimes these companies, when you're a partner, they'll market you more. So if all of those things are now being put into question, it's a little bit easier for me to say, you know what, this isn't best for our client, but if we don't do it, we're going to lose all these benefits. So let's push a solution that they don't need. And that's Mm -hmm. why, that's why, you know, we don't, we don't go down that path. Um, we have flat out rejected that model. We've been approached many, many times to do revenue sharing. Um, and have absolutely rejected that model. Um, I, I don't want to put myself or any of us in that situation where we have to make that decision. Um, and honestly, I just don't want our clients to ever have to think about that. I don't want them to think if, well, Jim's recommending that we go with Adobe audience manager. I want them to believe that 
we're doing that because we've vetted it out and and truly believe it's in their best interest and it's not because we're trying to hit some kind of uh sales goal that we have with adobe mm-hmm. um do you ever think you know at, at the vendors you know or you know someone you know people at the vendors ever kind of think that that could be a problem and god i just worded that question incredibly <laughs> terrible do you ever think like you know when these programs are de- designed or ever looked at, at at a vendor that this potential conflict of interest is brought up like you know we're we're you know we're potentially bringing harm to to our brand because we're incentivizing partners to go out and potentially give the wrong advice or potentially give the wrong solution just to make money from us I, I think so. I know so for a fact. I think there are really smart people in these companies that that see the big picture and see the um, the the harm that this could be creating over the long term. Unfortunately, um, their voice often gets drowned out because most most of these companies are public companies that are um, on a quarter to quarter basis on on what Wall Street expects. And that often means that sales is going to rule rule the day. And so if yeah. a strong voice comes in and says, look, over the long term, this is really going to harm what we're trying to do. But someone from sales comes in and says, yes, but this is necessary to hit the numbers that we're expected to hit. That's going to win nine times out of 10. Okay. Um, so now kind of coming back to, to your perspective, you know, we, we've both said like this, this happens, you know, th- this, this will happen frequently. What's your typical response that, you know, also makes it doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't sound like you're trying to create a turf war because that, that, in my opinion, when this does come up, you can mm-hmm. easily create the appearance of a turf war and put yourself in the wrong position. Yeah. So when it comes up from whose perspective? Uh, from yours, like you're, you know, you're Jason Thompson, like listening to, to that kind of conversation. Um, between like, uh, an agency and one of our clients or another customer. Um, I, I have gotten to the point where I have no patience for it. Okay. And I will absolutely call it out. Um, because again, if, if we're taking the approach that we believe that in the long term we will all be successful by doing the right thing by our customers, I, I can't sit silently by, and, and I haven't. You know, I have I have definitely called it out um, where where I've seen that that happening, um, and sometimes that means, um, you know, if it's a prospect and we don't all align, that means we lose the business because they just don't want to have to deal with it, and that's mm-hmm. okay. I would much rather be right and tell them what's best for them than to to win the business in the short term because i think in the long term we would end up losing anyway so Mm -hmm. it's easier for me to say and do that um because we're not a public company right um we're not driven by quarterly sales goals that um again anytime you introduce that that money component we can say that we'll we'll live by our standards but we know that as soon as you introduce money to that conversation at a certain threshold at certain pressures it you know you do start to question your character and it's unfortunate but it, it happens and so for me staying as far away from that as we can has made that that so much easier well it, it makes me think of 
two things that have come up recently. One, it was a couple conversation we had a couple of weeks back about managing to to metrics, and especially when you put the levers of those metrics in the hands of the people that are going to be judged by them. Mm -hmm. Right, like you could have the best of people, you know, under under pressure for either a quarterly review that's coming up, a commission check, whatever, to do what they need to do to make sure that the metrics are in their favor. Yeah. So you have that, and then it's also it, it's not directly related, but it still makes me think of a tweet that Evan put out uh, this morning. Uh, mm -hmm. Evan Lapointe, it, and I'm going to paraphrase, but you know, it was you know. Power doesn't corrupt. It's that you need to keep an eye. It's it's that those that seek power, oh God, I'm, I, I are often corrupt. Okay. No, it's those that are. You know, it, it's longer lines. Those that are corrupt are the ones that seek power and know how mm -hmm. the, the way to, to manipulate their way into a position of power. Yeah, yeah, and I think again. Um, sorry, what was your word of the day? Uh, sinister. Sinister. Um, you know, I think that there are sinister people that, that that's absolutely the case. But again, I think more often than not, it's just an output of the system that we put in place. And we, we, we kind of put it in place without thinking that we're putting people in these, these situations. Um, we talked about my social experiment at BYU. If we, we did, I, it's not come. it's not top of mind. Okay, well, I'm going to recap it uh, because I think it, it it definitely plays into this conversation. So Brigham Young University, um, a religious institution here in Utah, very, very high moral standards. Um, my, my assumption was, what I wanted to prove was that even for people with very high moral standards, once you introduce a way to reduce pressure or, or introduce additional money to unlock things, they begin to question it. So college students, for the most part, are fairly poor. You know, we all know the stories of living on dried ramen noodles. Um, so myself and a couple friends and a video camera went to BYU to test out this theory. And um, we, we uh, picked a location, central location in campus between classes, and we would pick out a random girl and we would say, you know, will you kiss the next person that walks by? And the answer was always, no, that's wrong. And of course, I'm not going to do that. Well, what if we gave you $10? Well, what if we gave you $20? You know, and as the money went up, you can see the gears churning. It's like, well, I have bills to pay. You know, it'd be nice to have a little extra cash for date night. And it's at a certain level, the, the, the conversation changed to, yeah, I would. This feels immoral and wrong, but I I, I would do it. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, the point of that is, is that anytime you introduce money into that conversation, you you introduce the ability for people to question their ideals and morals. And I don't think it's from a sinister perspective. It's just there's pressures they're under. There's things that they would like, and they start to to question their ideals. It it just happens. Mm -hmm. No, I, I, I can believe it. Yeah, that, that's funny. We, we've never, we've never talked about that. One. I, I thought I brought it up on a previous yeah. episode, but no, I no, I don't, think, I don't remember ever talking about that one. Okay, well, but it's also that. curious that you know, that's the kind of response you got at, yeah. at, at BYU. Yeah, but you know, they're, we're we're all human, you know, and it, it and it impacts all of us. And um, 
I, I was actually talking with a, a guy on Twitter this morning about this whole influencer marketing thing and how companies are losing tons of money from it. And he was saying, you know, they, there's actually these hubs where it's this, um, it's this site. My printer's making really uh, horrible noise behind me. Um, it's not the fly, it's the printer that wants to make an appearance today. Um, what was I saying? Oh, so the, there's these like groups where they get together and they, they scratch each other's backs. And so like they follow and like and comment on everyone that's in their group. So it like inflates what it looks like their influences. And I was thinking, I was really heavy into Flickr back in 2005, 2006. I love that platform. Um, but as they started introducing comments and likes and as photographers who had a big presence were starting to get exposure to do paid engagements, you all of a sudden saw people start to question their ideals. And these groups on Flickr started popping up that were, would be like, we'll let you in this group. There's only one rule. For every photo you post, you have to like the previous 10 and comment on the previous five photos that were behind you. And it was all this machine to get photographers and po photos more exposure and likes, mm -hmm. but it was all manufactured, yeah. right? And, and again, I think when you introduce these metrics without any kind of control or any kind of thought about what we're trying to do with them, it immediately opens it up to be gamed. Um, mm -hmm. And again, I don't think it's necessarily for sinister reasons. I think it's just, you know, human nature that we, we you know, we have things that we're trying to do. And if we can do it by, you know, gaming the system, you know, by compromising on our ideals, the, the higher the reward, the easier it is for us to justify that. Mm -hmm. And it all comes back to Dilbert. Because <laughs> in, in that metrics episode, we talked about the yeah. one part uh, from the Dilbert principle, where, you know, he, he talks about, you know, when he was a software engineer, the company he was working for came up with a quality, quality assurance program where they were going to commission every QA tester, you know, I don't know, $2 for every bug found, and then commit, you know, you pay a commission out to every developer, say $3 for every bug fixed. And he's like, overnight, a black market yeah. you know, surfaced of bugs and fixes. And I mean, I, I think he said it was like a couple thousand dollars, you know, someone got paid and that's when they realized that they had a problem. Yeah. And it's funny, you were talking about the whole influencer thing. Yeah. There's like colleges now offering degrees on how to become a social media influencer. Yeah. There's one in Italy. Yeah. I, I tweeted about it last week. Yeah. That, 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 that's funny. Yeah, that, that's really funny. And, and yeah. so then, you know, it comes back to the whole manufactured thing, the, the whole manufactured idea, you know, what is, is real. So if we take it back to the beginning, you know, how can, how can we tell if the the solution that we're getting is something manufactured to benefit the solution designer or to benefit us? Well, and I think it's it's the onus is on the buyer to to ask more insightful questions, to demand um, more insight and transparency into the process, and honestly, to book, to be more informed and educated about the process. If we go back to how we started this conversation, when you get to that late adopter part of the curve, people are buying just because everyone else is buying, and that's where mm -hmm. this tends to fester. And so, I think you know, really, the way to solve it is, you know, hopefully, agencies will have a bit more of a moral compass and understand that in the the long term, um, hopefully, the nice guy wins. Um, 
And, and if, you know, if not, then as buyers, we need to be more informed and we need to be asking tougher questions. And, you know, if we're paying $250,000 for a single Instagram post, then we need to demand that we see the performance of that. And, and, but in long before we make that buy that we investigate what we're buying. And again, we're not just doing it because everyone else is doing it. I think it's just too easy of a trap to fall into. And I don't want to say it's, it's lazy. I think it's just people are, you know, just look at the MarTech stacks and the landscape. It's going a million miles an hour and companies are asking employees to do way too many things. So it, you know, it's, it's, it's not, uh, it's not a shock that um, there's some, again, it's not lazy. It's just, they're, they're so overwhelmed with everything else. So it's a, if I can pay someone to turn on a pipe and water flows, then I'm going to be okay with it. Even if it's inefficient, even if we could have it better, you know? Mm -hmm. Good stuff. Good yeah. Stuff. I mean, kind of all over the place today, but I think it's yeah. a lot of really, really timing, timeful, uh, timeful. Um, uh, oh God, what's the word? Um, well-timed. <laughs> well-timed is better. It sounds better. <laughs> well, well-timed topics for sure. Yeah, it is. Um, I think what else? Cause I think we, 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 fair, we, we got to that one, you know, I think we, we covered that one pretty well. Like, I, yeah. I don't think I have much more, more to say on that one. And yeah, I mean, it ultimately it comes down to integrity, but I think, yeah, when you start adding money on top of it, just about anybody's integrity could be questioned. Yeah. So I, you know, I think we wrap it up with that and because I think it's such a great takeaway for our listeners that it doesn't matter if we're talking about buying a new, uh, MarTech solution, we're talking about partnering with a, uh, a, a vendor, an agency, a consultant, that as the buyer, we really need to be more informed and ask tough questions. And I welcome it. You know, as someone out there selling services, I welcome buyers asking really tough questions about why we're different and why we, you know, and how we make decisions that are best for them. I, I wish more, more buyers would be like that. Have you ever gotten asked if we get commission, you know, get, get commission a payouts? Lot. A lot. Oh, yeah. Well, so, I mean, it's good. I'm glad you're asking that. It, it is. That's so, a good thing. So speaking of our buyers, they tend to be fairly well um, informed about the things they should ask. I, I get asked two questions almost every kind of new sales opportunity that I get involved with. Number one is, do you get, do you get kickbacks from the MarTech vendors that you work with? which I think is a great question to ask. Do you want to take a guess at what the second most popular question is? Uh, let me think here for, for a second. Um, do you get kickbacks? Oh, I, I think we've talked about this before. I'm, I'm, and I'm blanking. I, th I think you may have told me, but go ahead. So the second most popular question I at, get asked is, who are we going to work with? And the reason why this comes up is that so many times uh, service agencies do a bait and switch where they put really high profile people out in front of a prospect and then the work gets outsourced to another agency or it gets assigned to a subcontractor or, you know, so I get asked that question a lot. Do you use subcontractors? Do you outsource? Am I going to be working with a full-time 336 employee? That's a good one. I didn't it's even a great one. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. So, so one last thing, kind of like coming back to you know a, a solution for this. Like we've talked about, like it's great that there are buyers that proactively ask that. And this is coming. This question is coming from a person where 
my my first gut reaction is not rules and regulations, right? It's it, it's not that. But do you think there should be a level of disclosure um, as a service industry on commissions you're paid? Absolutely. Yeah. Like yeah. Like, like, like mandated disclosure. I you know I hate I hate legislating things. Exactly, um, I do too, and that that's why I'm I, I'm, I'm I, curious because. It's one thing to be proactive as the buyer and asking. It's a, a, a good thing to be proactive as a seller and say, yeah. we don't get kickbacks, but do you think it should go the legislative route? Yeah. Or is I, this just too small of a problem at the moment? I, I don't know. I think it's a big problem, but it's something that I would like to see not legislated. I'd like to see handled both, um, again, from a buyer perspective and maybe from a industry perspective. So many, many years ago, I think back in the web analytics association days, or maybe it was the DAA, uh, but they, they came up with a code of ethics that they asked analysts to agree to and sign and abide by. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I think there should be some kind of code of ethics that agencies um, and vendors operate under. And the way to make that stick is for buyers to start insisting things like, you know, we need you to be transparent about the relationships that you have in place. And it's not to say that if you have a, uh, a monetary relationship between a vendor and an agency, that that's um, a, a dead stop, a red flag. It should be something that's questioned because, you know, again, it, it, it brings things into question, but there are agencies out there that have, you know, that get kickbacks that I think do amazing work. So I don't want to say just because you are getting money from a vendor that, you're absolutely in the wrong. I just think it puts you in a situation where it's easier for you to question your ideals, but that should be that should be exposed because as a buyer, I would want to know that so I can evaluate it. And again, it's not a make or break, but it should be part of the evaluation process and, and should be something that should be exposed. Again, I would prefer to handle that more at a business level than having to legislate it though. Mm -hmm. Well, it's funny because what it ultimately is, is disclosing your bias. Right. And there may be people that, that, that are fine with that level of bias as long as, as long as they know what it is, yeah. because it, it makes me think of the, the Christian science monitor. Mm -hmm. They're very clear on their bias. Yeah. You know, it is the church's perspective on the news and current events. Mm -hmm. And as I read it, I actually think even though they put out there what their bias is, they're one of the least biased news outlets yeah, right now. They're, they're pretty down the middle. They're, they're very down the middle. They're very fair. And they put it out there like, this is the perspective that we're, we're writing from. Whereas there's others out there that try to say, nope, we're, we're independent. We're fair. And, you know, no, there's absolutely a level of bias. It's, it's funny that the ones that say they're the most fair are the most biased. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that should be a red flag. If you're out there like saying, you know, I'm the most fair, eh, I don't know. So yeah, yeah I, you know, I, I, I love the idea of disclosure. Um, we could do a better job at it because, you know, we've made that our stance, but we don't do a great job of like showing it out there. Sure. When we're in discussions with prospects, it comes up and we talk mm -hmm. about it, but you know, maybe we should be a leader in that space and expose more of those things that we do from a moral, ethical, you know, ideal standpoint so that, you know, perhaps we can have a small degree of influence on on the larger ecosystem. I'm mm -hmm. all for that. Yeah. And as we're wrapping up, I'm going to take your role this week and say that's a great future episode. And how <laughs> do you how do you disclose those kind of things about who you are? without making it uh, an over overly salesy pitch. Yeah, because it, 
Well, let's it talk about be. that next week. Yeah, let's do it. And and by the way, for the record, that's two weeks in a row. Because I listened back to the episode with Bryant where I was missing. You <laughs> said, I'm going to play Jason Droll. You, I heard so. <laughs> I, I even I listen to our podcast even when I'm not a guest. <laughs> that's awesome. So yeah, I'm actually this has turned out to be a great episode with just a let's figure out a topic on the fly. Yeah, I like and it. I think it's given us a good idea for a follow on episode for next week. So I'm going to flesh that out a bit I about agree. like how can you disclose? Here's what I'm thinking: How do you disclose? your standards, you know, your, pr the principles you stand on without it coming across as a phony salesy pitch. Yep. That's a good I one. Like I like it. it. I really cool. like it. Cool. cool. So let, let's talk about that next week. All right. Sounds good. Thanks, Jim. I'm going to go check out this uh, Chinese food assembly line here. Yeah. Definitely send some pictures. Will do. All right. Thanks, Jason. Yeah. See you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of 33 Tangents. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast aggregator so others can find us. If you would like to reach us, you can do so by emailing podcast at 33sticks.com or on the web at 33tangents.33sticks.com. 33 Tangents is a production of 33 Sticks, an analytics